Hi, this is William Ramsey. This is the second hour of a three-hour interview I did with attorney Paul Morantz discussing his book, Escape, My Lifelong War Against Cults. If you're interested in listening, listening to the entire three-hour interview, please go to my YouTube channel at William Ramsey Investigates. Thank you. Hi, this is William Ramsey. We're back with uh, Paul Morantz, attorney Paul Morantz. We're finishing up his discussion uh, about Synanon, so he has some clips he'd like to play for the audience. Paul, do you have those well, clips? That, it, yeah, it's three clips of three different groups, and it's, if you don't believe that um, brainwashing exists, um, you may have a different opinion. You know, they say a picture's you know, worth a thousand words. These three tapes may be more than my book um, because it's real. And so, first is, this is Jonestown, and the setting is before they they take the Kool-Aid, and um, people are giving testimonials to Jim Jones, and one man says that he will lay down his, his life, and uh, but not his daughter's. And then Jones uh, gets the crowd to sort of, convince him that he should kill his daughter, which he finally, if you listen carefully, he says that she'll die too, and then everyone starts celebrating. It's pretty hard to believe. When I used to teach at USC, I actually found that my audience, it was very hard for the students to listen to this tape, so I kind of warn you. Father went on and on into the night his congregation, scared and confused and worried, he needed them now even more. They responded often with shouts of praise and murmurs of amen and lined up to come to the microphone to testify to their love for him and their love for socialism, a love so pure they would do anything to prove it, commit suicide, even kill their children. How do you feel about it? You may die tonight. Dad, from 68 to 69, the campus sent me to Vietnam to fight a war that I didn't know anything about. I had no principle to die in that war. You have saved my life so many times, Dad. Now I don't have no life of my own. I'm living on your time. I would die for you right now, Dad. I'm willing to face the front line with you right now. Thank you, Dad. Since I've been here, I've, I've all I've seen is the beauty of socialism. And I feel that my life is fulfilled, and if death comes, it's no, it's no big deal to me because I've already lived my life just being here with the family. Thank you, Dad. Thank you. We were, we were trying to light candles, not push us. I'm, I'm prepared to die for this family if I have, have to for freedom. Thank you, Dad. I'm also prepared to die after 44 years of... Uh, not being able to uh, contribute anything to this life or finding any point or reason for it at all and uh, not being well known uh, at all there sure would be no glory in it but uh, for the children here for the freedom as long as there's one remains on this earth that isn't free none of us are free and i'm prepared to give my life if need be no i'd give mine in the place of hers you hold it now. He worked out on a sensitive point that maybe you think about it. He, he brought, they brought up a sensitive question, and you may not understand the gravity of that question, but all of our children have faced this. We went through white nights, so they will not be hurt by it. We haven't had any child <laughs> cause us any difficulties by facing this kind of thought. Jerry, the question would be, if the fascists were coming up the road right now, and we were going to lay down our lives and fight for it. You say you would give your life for your child, but would you leave it for the fascists to have? What would you do in that case? Came to that, I would have to take her life. Fine. You understand that? You understand that? Will you? But she's she's so old. She fight. How old is your child? Eleven. So she passed the age. We fight at eleven. It's under that that we consider that. She would take up a cutlass and fight till she was dead. Unless it came to an overwhelming invasion, 
then we would gently put them to, to sleep, which we have, but they never know what hits them. We are already prepared for that. A people who are really loving and a father who's genuinely compassionate is prepared for all such emergencies. But you don't do that as long as there's alternatives in which you can make a mark. You don't do that unless there's alternatives. All alternatives are closed for you to make a mark against fascism. Uh, yes, I think you all should die tonight. If it's our turn, I'm willing, Father, to stand with you all the way, just like I always have told you three years ago. Everything seems and will always be the same. I'm not changing. You don't need to say. You don't need to say no more. I, I, I remember know. your fight. I love you, Father. I know you do. I know. Some of my people that others go, I felt like they're going to hurt you. When you hurt you, you hurt me. Right. I'll tell you the truth. I'm not going to lie. Mm -hmm. You're the only father I have. That's the only family I have. Sorry, I give God. up my brother. I remember you fighting. You. you. I remember when you sang, I never heard him. Sing it for us right now. I'm going to sing it for you. <laughs> All the days of my life, ever since I've been born, I never heard a man speak like this man before. I never heard a man speak like this man before. All the days of my life, ever since I've been born. Never heard a man speak like this man before. The days of my life ever since I've been born. Never heard a man like this before. That's true. Wherever in the hell it's brought us, it brought us on principle, it brought us on courage. And it brought us to the right place. I never heard a man speak like this man before. I never heard a man speak like this man before. All the days of my life, ever since I've been born. I never. Louder, louder. Clap your hands. I never. I never heard a man speak like this man before All the days of this life ever since I've been born I never heard a man speak like this man before Now make your sound move mistake to try to come in and take any one of us we will not let you you will die you will have to take anybody over all of our dead bodies what you heard was 900 people singing themselves to their death it's amazing it's an amazing clip yeah um next one is um this is the center for feeling therapy and when people were brought in they were made to go for two weeks every day to meet with a therapist in a room they don't allowed to watch tv or do anything wear makeup and it's called their intensive and in this one um, the patient tells the therapist that he beat someone blindfold in chest and the therapist says but you knew you could do it you set him up and when he uh, refuses to um, uh, agree with that, um, you'll hear what happens. Okay. No, I didn't set him up. Did you think you played? Did you play better than me? Yeah. I wasn't sure. Can't be sure. Yeah. 
That's a yeah. Uh, that's a clip from the Venice Center for Feeling Therapy. Joseph Hart, who actually was teaching at USC at that time, and they actually, when they started, they were teaching at Irvine and recruited a large part of their class to join the Center for Feeling Therapy. The person that you heard attacked on that tape stayed there for nine years. Therapeutic community. Remarkable. They controlled, you know, who they lived with, who they could have sex with. They had to get permission to break up or assign jobs. It was pretty uh, amazing. And then... Uh, uh, now, uh, this one here is... This was seized... Second, this was seized by the L.A. Police Department on a search warrant at Synanon and after the attack on me. Gotcha. And... Sitting on knowing they were coming, had moved tapes out, cleaned it up, and as and they didn't really find anything, but as one officer was leaving, he spotted three tapes, cassette tapes, and a rubber band that had fallen behind the cabinet. And when he swung got home, it was labeled, Don't Fuck With Sitting On, the New Religious Posture. And this was the key evidence to convict Dietrich. Okay. So here it goes. And I, I, I keep thinking of, of, of the militant posture. Militant defense is don't tread on me or something like that. That's, that's what I think. This, uh, I think we must do that. I think we must do that. And uh, I think they taking this kind of a posture will will decimate our population once again. Uh, because it means doing something, which is you know, doing something different, which is the most frightening thing in an other direction of society. 
other directors' mentality being at all eccentric. And uh, I think it will decimate our population, which will be good. Seventy-seven. So it was a lot. Yeah, but the there was 
this was at Morning Court, and Morning Court and Sunan. They, Diedrich would have the microphone be played on the wire, be over breakfast, and it would be replayed over and over again. But they would write down summaries of his speeches at Think Table, and later when Diedrich was arrested, they had his Think Tables for all of 77 through to the present, and from the summaries you can see that this was a constant theme repeated over and over again at, at morning court, what they're going to do to the enemies. Right. Well, he repeats and, himself, too. That's kind of like a rhetorical strategy, too, is to impart that upon people. Yeah, he, just saying, we're going to, it's a new, different posture. No more, turn yeah. the other cheek. He just sees that over. How long did that take was, for? Was, uh, well, I just paid you, you know, part of it. How long is this usually? Went on? Well, like 30 uh, minutes? Would he drone on for hours? He like might. He, he could go on for because he could go from subject to subject, you know. There was another tape that they seized uh, called The Freebies Are Over, which planned how they were going to get the money out of Cinnaron to their private pockets. Gotcha. Um, and, uh, but um, what's amazing is later is in the tape is. Uh, one of the lawyers speaks up and, you know, it's like, and uh, talks about me. And so you realize that makes it so chilling is you can hear people, you know, having breakfast and listening and joining saying yes. And there's nobody who says, wait a second, we can't kill people. Right. You know? Yeah, it's crazy. You know? Well, let's go it, back. It, let's it, go back to where we think we... it's crazy, but it's not. Well, you know, yeah. it, 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 it's the way human beings are. It explains. Cults are microisms, a larger society. When you really study them, you sort of understand what happens in nations at a bigger level. You sort of understand, you know, why ISIS was so predictable to a result from the Iraq war. You know, you understand uh, how people polarize um particularly when they're attacked, you know. Right. And I think it had a lot to do with the way the election went, you know, was the, uh, you know, if you, if you look at my book, you know, it was written 2011, it came out in 2012, mm -hmm. and I said, what does the future hold after the economic chaos in 2008? Right. The fear over loss of jobs, the modern technology has, and the globalization, and then the ability for someone to rally people through social media. You know, what right. will the future hold? Of course, I never said, you know, the person might well, be. Oh, that was very portentous because uh, Trump clearly is playing off of people's fears, and he's a master yeah, of social yeah, media. He's, 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 yeah, he's, yeah, they it, say he's it, one it, of the best users think... of social media they've ever seen in a political sense, sending tweets all well, day. It, 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 it may be, but what was more interesting to me in one sense was that, you know, the media took Nixon down. Bush had this high rating, and then when they finally woke up, the media took Bush down. But Trump, the media exposed him uh, way before the election, I mean, uh, nonstop. I was just wondering, well, who's reading Time, Newsweek, who's listening to John Oliver? You know, I mean, it's uh, it was it was hard, but now I sort of realize that it's what George Orwell said and Eric Hoffer that you know, when when people are afraid and they're losing their freedoms and they're worried about themselves, you know, they want someone who's going to bring a boot down on somebody's face. And that's been history. In fact, if you look at it, it starts before the president election. We're just not paying much attention. Greece has an election, and what sort of neo-Nazis come in and take over Greece and say we're not going to allow non-Greeks in here anymore. You know, in Germany, that the chancellor is getting in trouble for taking in too many Muslims. In in in, Brit in Britain, British, you know what they did. So there's all sorts of signs worldwide right. that people are turning, you know. And, of course, in, in, you know, Russia, you know, when 
democracy was given but without much of a plan. You know, the starvation and the uh, lack of support, you know, is bring, you know, bring us button. And so it's not actually, if you look at it, it's not really that great of a surprise. I just didn't think, I thought the difference in the United States and elsewhere is our free media. And, um, and I have, it's the first time I've sort of seen it not protect us. Well, I think that they attacked Trump pretty viciously. In my opinion, they were after him all the time, but it didn't seem to resonate with people. I think it may have actually worked no. against them because that solidified may, people's position like, oh, these people are all a cartel. Yeah, but also I think that, I think that uh, the Democrats underestimated just how much people were fed up with the Clintons. Yeah, yeah I think so. I, I mean, she was a big part of it. I don't, think, I don't think Hillary was Clinton horrible. was – yeah, she's not a great candidate. Not a great, I no, mean, Trump no, is a lousy fact, candidate. In so, fact, yeah. he was a lousy candidate, and what she did most of the time is drop to his level and get in a pissing fight with him. That's true. And he's much better at it than she is. Yeah. You know, she needed to keep it like, you know, just go on, Donald, but I'm going to talk about issues. And yeah, I what agree. My when she said are. deplorables and called them deplorables, that's when I knew she was going to be in deep trouble. Because then she really alienated people against him. Half of his supporters are deplorables. Those are the people who are going to go out and vote. She right. just incentivized people who were on the fence to vote against her. So I think that was a big well, mistake. That's the sense that the Clintons were arrogant and you know think that they're sort of royalty yeah. and they've been making too much money. And uh, I think there was a lot of that. You know. Yeah. Hi, this is William. We took a little break and returned to the subject of Sinanon and Charles Dieterich. Thank you. All right, Paul Morantz, if we're back, can you please uh, follow up where we left off and talk about uh, the Imperial sure. Marines and their association with Sinanon? In the tape that uh, I know is going to be played um, here or has been played about Diedrich, he, he talks about they beat up the Danuba punks and the San Francisco punks and were throwing people downstairs in Santa Monica. They had already, by 75, began to beat up people in Santa Monica, they took them down in the basement. And um, the Duma Punks were some young kids who um, uh, managed to make the mistake of hitting a Sinon post up in Visalia. My, their car went running when they came back to get it with some friends. The car had been moved on Sinon property. And when they went on there, the doors closed and people came out with clubs and handles and hospitalized the kids. And... Um, same thing happened in San Francisco, and things like that also happened in Santa Monica. A kid slept in a van and sat on a parking lot so he'd go surfing in the morning. I think he was 17 or 18. And they surrounded the van, took him out, and beat him up. Later, uh, two black couples in the same car came in looking for a parking space, and they were attacked, mercilessly beaten. And, um, uh, Diedrich on the tape says we're going to get better at this. And so in April of 1977, um, 12 to 15 people are put on a list to pick up to pick to be Imperial Marines in a depot flats in uh, Visalia next to Sinan's airstrip. Uh, they commence training to become Imperial Marines being taught by an ex-sergeant in the military, and then ultimately by a doctor, Doug Robeson. And um, they learn about rattlesnakes, and they catch them, and they learn about Dr. Robeson, tells them how they, the rattlesnake can kill a person. And uh, they are taught that their mission is to protect Sinanon and to go out and get the enemies. And... Uh, then the Imperial Marines started doing just that. And for me, I guess it was the summer of 78 and June of 78, um, uh, I got three kids out of Sinan. By then, Sinan had purchased $305,000, according to some reports, of weapons, you know, shotguns. Mm -hmm. 357s, um, you know, high-powered scope rifles. And when I got this order for get these three miners out of Sinan to a grandmother, 
father had left and the mother had died, so they were sort of abandoned. And then I contacted the San Francisco Police Department. I told them, there's one thing you should know. And the guy said, what's that? And I said, they've got more weapons than you do. And so 11 police cars sitting on hand by now at a facility in San Francisco, and we talked them to grandmother to allow a visit and talked them to bring the kids to San Francisco. And they didn't know we had the court order. And the police said, go and enforce the court order. And um, they said no. And the next thing, 11 uh, police cars had surrounded them, and rifles and, and guns were all pointed at Sinanon. And at that point, Sinanon gave up, gave up the kids. And and now, you know, Sinanon's aware that I've done this. Right? So I struck again, you might say. Gotcha. You know? And you know the other big thing was is that you know I knew that people had to know about Sinanon, and I didn't know when I was going to get a trial date. So you know I tipped off the media, and the media you know was following the cases and stories were appearing about Sinanon. And um, and then in September, uh, I win a three hundred thousand dollar judgment for that woman. And I thought maybe at that point it might be over. But um, on September 19th, Phil Ritter, who had been trying to get his child out and also who had gone to the authorities about forced vasectomies and synonym, when Dietrich declared there was no more children. And um, he came home and, and he was attacked, hit over the head with axe handles, he would have died, but someone walked by and saw it and started screaming and stopped the attack and they ran away. And when that happened, I knew that um, I was in deep trouble. I had, there had been a bill to exempt Sinan from all licensing. I had worked to get the health department in there, not on the drug addict side of it, but on the side that they were taking in people like Francis who was pre-psychotic and went psychotic because of her being in there and that they don't have any license to treat, you know, mental illness. Right. And uh, uh, so now uh, Herschel Rosenthal was an assemblyman who worked uh, with putting through a bill to exempt Senator from all licensing. Barbara Boxer was in a... uh, a Marin County um, a councilwoman, and she had somebody in the county council call me and request that I go to Sacramento to defeat the bill. She was kind of afraid because they were constituents, and Marin County was very sparse in those days, a small little town, and the size of Sinanon was intimidating everyone, particularly with the beatings. Right. And uh, so I went, and, and the bill got defeated in the last committee by one vote. So when Phil Ritter got attacked, I knew that if they would do that to Phil Ritter, I was in big trouble because they would want me. I would be enemy number one. Right, and they had so, said, and it, Dieterich yeah. had said on the wire, he said, who is this guy, Morantz? Why didn't someone break his leg? So he had said threatening things about you, probably without your knowledge at the time, right? Well, I, I had heard that. You know, people from who had been in Sinanon and came out and came to see me, you know, told me he was saying things like that. So that wasn't really so much uh, new news. But a, a, a former Sinanon lawyer whose nephew was still in there called me and said, Paul, I've talked to some people in Sinanon, and they say that they're broadcasting your address on the wire. Wow. And that got me. At that point, I went and purchased a shotgun. I um, my, I thought it was a very good idea, as I told the LA Times. I said, Sinanon's going to try to kill me, and they printed it. And I thought, well, now they're not going to want to prove me right, so this should stop it, you know. Gotcha. Um, but I was wrong. And, you know, it was a very tough time from the moment of Phil Ritter's attack to the day that uh, that I got it. 
was an incredible uh, two and a half weeks sleeping with a shotgun by my side, you know, afraid someone, you know, if my dogs bark, you know, to, you know, go out in the backyard to, you know, jump if I heard a crack. I would search under my car before I started it. I would be so careful crossing the streets. And I remember I told Dave Mitchell, who won the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of Sinan, that if it looks like an accident, promise me that you'll never stop investigating. Right. So you were expecting to be jumped or run over by a car or something like that. Yeah, I thought they would try to make it look like an accident because it was uh, too, uh, it would be so obvious if something happened to me. You know, I mean, it would be like, you know, be signing a death warrant, you know. Right. And then what happened I next? Had, well, uh, Joe Musico, the one, Jeremy Marines, had, you know, he'll blast me with a shotgun on the freeway, but someone else suggested uh, putting rattlesnakes in my mailbox, and that's what they did. That's what they did. So you walked out to your mailbox in the afternoon. When did it happen? No, my, well, my mailbox was in the wall. I had returned from a meeting with a representative of, of the Governor Brown's Office Department of Justice, and it was, you know, that's to say the Synodon was trying to kill me. And by this time, a whole list of ex-Synodon people had signed a document about beatings and what was going on and gave it to the authorities because of what they did to Phil Ritter. So now there was starting to be this, oh, oh, maybe there really is something here. And they're meeting with me and LAPD intelligence, which I had just helped with asked if you read that chapter yeah, I did, of course. in my book. Yeah. And so the same LAPD guys that had asked me to help them with S, you know, believed me and they were there and, and had this meeting. And uh, I came home from it and was tired. The World Series was coming on and I just wanted to not think about it for a little bit. And I put my books down in the kitchen and a few short steps in the wall is the mailbox in the wall. There's an outside, you open the lid, mm-hmm. and the inside of the house, you you open the lid gotcha. like a fronted shoebox, right. and the snake was coiled in there. Unfortunately for me, um, I was kind of vain in those days, and um, I didn't want to wear glasses. And contact lenses, they were just hard, not soft ones, and it kind of hurts. So sometimes I just didn't wear anything. I think that if I, my glasses were on order, if I had been wearing my contacts or wearing glasses, I think I would have seen what it was inside the grill and I would not have gotten dead. But because um, it was blurry to me, I thought it was a scarf or an oblong package. You never would think a rattlesnake. And it's of course, his tail was removed, so it didn't rattle. didn't rattle. I still look upon myself as stupid, and people say, well, no one would expect a rattlesnake in your mailbox. But I should have expected a bomb, you know, seeing an odd package in there. I mean, I should have gone down real close and inspected it, and if it was an odd package, you know, call for the bomb squad. Gotcha. What, pretty stupid for some. What for happened after it bit you? How did you, I mean, you were lucky to survive. How did you uh, save your life? Well, the first thing is when I came home, my border colleagues, Tommy and Devin, would greet me at the door, and then they would go out and play in the front yard, so I'd leave the front door open, and in about 20 minutes they'd come back, and then I'd close it. Well, they heard me scream, and they were coming charging full speed back to the front of the house, and the snake had recoiled on the floor, and so I had to... Uh, I had to risk getting bit a second time to get sort of over the snake and shut the door on my dogs. And then I, I used to study when I was in elementary school uh, sort of herpetology as a hobby. I used to catch lizards and things. And I sort of knew that I was supposed to get ice. I was trying to knew I had to stay calm. And I, I opened the back door. I, I, 
knock out the wood piece that would keep the sliding glass door from opening so someone could get in. I went out the rear of the kitchen door and locked it as I went because I wanted to make sure that no kids came in in the house. And then as I went out the back door, I started screaming to my neighbor to call an ambulance and that uh, uh, I had been bitten by a rattlesnake, you know, was sitting on. And uh, uh, apparently I was in the street pretty much screaming and people came out and they laid me down and put blankets over me. And as with luck would have it, one of my neighbors at, at, at the college he was at, he had just taken a a course on uh, what to do on a rattlesnake bite. Wow. And, uh, and uh, he, you know, cut my hand and, and tied a tourniquet, took off his shirt and tied a tourniquet, and he may have saved my life. Wow, that's amazing. That's very fortunate. Yeah. Very fortunate. So back then, that was a big story in the local news and the media, correct? Yeah. In fact, I remember, you know, they, they didn't have enough anti-venom that, it sent him out of the hospital. I got three miles and then was transferred to USC, which was a snake snake capital, actually, a treatment in the world at that time. And I remember the doctor, a young woman doctor, came in and she sort of laughed and she said, How did a big, strong man like you get managed to get bit by a rattlesnake? And I said, It was in my mailbox. It was a murder attempt. And she looked at me like, What? And then all of a sudden, she heard noise behind her, and she saw all the police lighting up the hallway to protect me. Amazing. That's an incredible story. There's a picture of you in in your book in the hospital bed with tons of uh, right. photographers and guys from the media taking pictures of you. It's a pretty interesting. Yeah, story. it was a pretty amazing thing because, you know, it was like uh, – at the time, even though I'd see, you know, see some new stuff on TV, I had no idea what was going on in the outside world. I didn't really have quite the sense of what a, if this was the biggest news story in the world at this point. And uh, so when they told me that they were taking me in the room to talk to some press, I just expected, you know, a few media, media people. And when, when I was wheeled into that room, I was shocked. Yeah, it was a big story. Unfortunately, Even, I, I, unfortunately I gave such a big big speech about how there was going to be more violence and, and more cold violence that uh, that two of the people who were there went to Jonestown and died. That's, that's a remarkable, later. remarkable story. They, you even merited a comment from William S. Burroughs, who said, yeah. Hardcore Synanon members still believe the media put that rattlesnake in Paul Morantz's mailbox to discredit Synanon. Is there any limit to brainwashing, William Burroughs wrote? Yes, yeah, it's become a famous quote. You yeah. know, I feel kind of honored, you know. I always remember uh, Chevy Chase's comment on Saturday Night uh, Live. What did he, he was, say? Well, he was, you know, he used to do this newscast where he was a newscaster, and he said, uh, today, Sinon, they'd probably have it announced that it's Christmas going out of business cell. So send it in your checks early to get a rattlesnake for your very own mailbox. Wow. Oh, I didn't, <laughs> yeah. didn't hear that yeah, part. It becomes sort of a, a national joke. You know, another one was, uh, you know, why why did a thousand synonym people uh, commit suicide? Why? To keep up with the Joneses. Oh, oh my gosh. So what, yeah, was the, what was the fallout from the rattlesnake bite, and how did that affect synonym? Well, you know, Synanon is pretty amazing. Um, Dan Garrett, who was the head of the Synanon Legal Department, who had, uh, you know, trashed and defeated everybody, finally got, he took it over running Synanon because Diedrich was now stone drunk and, you know, was put in jail and everything. And when Diedrich sort of came out of it and found Garrett in control, he sort of pushed Garrett out. Howard Garfield had left just before the attack and lawyer in San Francisco. A lot of people believe it was because of they were planning the murders and some people also think that he that there might have been some conversation about group sex. You know, in December seventy seven, Diedrich, after his wife died, ordered all the couples to change partners. 
And so uh, they didn't know what he was going to do next. But So Phil Burdett sort of inherited it, and there was an onslaught of litigation that was set on in the criminal case. You know, there's a very short side story to this that is kind of interesting, if you want me yeah, to. Yeah, please do. Please tell me. In 1975, I think it was, they opened the Federal Public Defender's Office in Los Angeles. They didn't have one until then. They only had the state public defender. And a man who had been framed by uh, a detective from Buena Park and spent two and a half years in the federal penitentiary, a private investigator for this new office was able to prove the frame and got him released from prison, and they arrested the crime lab guy who manufactured the evidence against him. And I went to do a story. You know, I remember I was doing magazine article writing, and I wrote this for Coast Magazine. And um, I went and interviewed the very first man to serve as, as federal public defender, and his name was John Vandekamp. And um, we sort of hit it off, and then he called me to tell me how much he liked the article. And I said to him, you know, John, I know that you're going to be a politician. I know that this is just your first stepping stone. And I said that uh, I hate politics, but I believe in you. And I said, if you ever need to um, have a volunteer or you need volunteers or something, when you when you make your move to run for offices, um, you can call on me. And he never did call on me. But... When I got to Rattlesnake, John Vandekamp was the district attorney of Los Angeles. Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Sidon and I never knew uh, that, you know, Vandekamp assigned the three best deputies in his office. And major crimes went into, you know, they were working on the Hillside Strangler, but now they're working on Sidon. You know, it was pretty amazing the job that the police and the district attorney's office had done. What criminal did. charges were filed against Sinanon? What's that? Do you know the criminal charges that were filed? Were they convicted? Yes, conspiracy to, to commit uh, murder and also uh, Diedrich was charged with ordering a kidnapping of somebody. Gotcha. But, uh, but the story of how Sinanon ends on is to the guilty pleas for 1980, mm-hmm. and Sinanon is not only surviving, but they're getting r- richer. Uh, people are still uh, sending uh, money to um, for their uh, merchandise, right? For the merchandise. Merchandise, part. and they're making, yeah, making money. I think you even had somebody on your show who, you know, uh, didn't die in Jonestown, who joined Synanon after the Ralph thing. Yes. Yep, yep. So the, uh, what happened was is that finally in 82, I have to tell an interesting little story. I'm sorry, it goes back, no. but, but it, it's worth it. No, do it. No, your stories are fantastic. In, ni- in 1978, Peter Bourne is the sort of uh, drug czar and uh, consultant of President Carter and very good friends with her his sister, who, if you know, was sort of into the self-help stars. and. She was like know, a new ager, right? Yeah, yeah. She she invited Warner Earhart to to come to you know S to the White House, and she you know also through Bourne opened invitations to Sinanon. So Sinanon goes to Washington D.C. and puts a down payment to buy the Boston House, and the Boston House. This is in summer. Around you know July of '78, mm-hmm. the Boston House is going to be the embassy to the White House, and Sinanon then first tries to buy out the tenants to leave, and then starts to using terrorism and physical threats on the one, other ones to get rid of them. 
one of the people that did that too was an aide to Adlai Stevenson. That he went to the media. Uh, NBC had done a segment three on Senate and so now the media is hanging outside the Boston House. Diedrich and Garfield come out, and Diedrich goes after a photographer with a cane, I think, and a arrest warrant goes out for Diedrich and Garfield. And at that point, Senate they all flee. In fact, they go to Italy. And it was there in Italy that Dietrich began drinking again. And he was like off for 17 years or something, right? Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people think that that's where he gave the orders on Ritter and, and me. But then soon on, they started drinking. So, um, um, but that was in your I, um, yeah. Okay, so, so now, Synanon sues the owner of the Boston House, Bernstein, to get their security deposit back, saying that uh, he didn't tell them the truth about zoning laws and that they were having problems. And he says, I'm not giving deposit. And he files a cross-complaint against Synanon, saying, you didn't tell us that you're a terrorist organization and you terrorized my tenants and, and drove them out. And, um, and he wants money. Now, that becomes very important. And the reason is, now, 1982, the IRS finally says, you know, you got to pay taxes, you know, retroactively the last three years. And Synanon files a lawsuit to challenge that. And at that point, I get a conversation, a phone call from the Department of Justice, two lawyers, uh, Tom Lawler, and Frank Hurst, who were really, truly great lawyers. And they called me, but they didn't know anything about Synanon. I remember they told me later, I actually didn't remember it, they said that when they called me and they said who they were from the United States Department of Justice, they said I responded, where in the fuck have you guys been? (laughs) So anyway, they were there now, and uh, I then became a consultant to the United States Department of Justice. And it sort of changed direction. Their case was sort of built around that time that the money that had been taken out of Synodon into the private pockets of people and uh, to money paid on to Diedrich's bank account and to the fact that there was no charity purpose. But there's another rule of law that says that even if you are a charity, there's no absolute right to not pay taxes. We do that on the assumption that you're serving the public good. We give you this gift. So we are making like a contribution to your charity. But if you do things that are against public policy, well, then we don't want to make a gift to you, and you got to pay taxes like everyone else. The United States Supreme Court rendered this case in the case against uh, Bobby Jones University, which was... Uh, running a college did not allow blacks to date whites. So they said, well, that's against public policy, so uh, we don't care if you're church-owned or not. You're paying taxes. And so what I said to them, I said, it seems to me like terrorism and trying to kill people is sort of against public policy. Right, good point. And by that time, by that time we, had this, we had the mass of documents of Synodon, which is another story if you want to hear how how they were obtained. They were actually obtained by lawyers right in D.C. Um, that said, you know, beat them up, you know, we're going to go out and get the enemies, uh, you know, knock their teeth out, you know, all, all these documents. You know, Synodon kept records on all their beatings and everything they did. I was able to identify from documents, I think, 87 or 88 beatings. And, and that part of my book that you read gave details on the meetings were largely from sitting on documents. Interesting. That and police reports. And so, uh, since we had all this in writing, and the tape that you, you know, that I've had you listen to, is was, you can make a summary judgment motion. There's no issue that sitting on committed acts of terrorism and meetings, and therefore, it's against public policy. They have to be taxed, and their cases thrown out. 
on a summary judgment motion. So they made that motion, and Synodon is filing its opposition. And while that's going on, in that case against Bernstein, the one in Washington, D.C., right, over the Brown House, they hold, they hold a hearing in which former Synodon members get on the stand and testify that after Diedrich was arrested for conspiracy to murder me, there started an operation in Synodon to destroy all the tapes and get, or get them out and hide them and to erase references to their existence in their computer system. There was 11 days of testimony, and at the end of the hearing, the judge issued an opinion that Synodon was guilty of destroying evidence relating to the issue of whether or not they were a terrorist organization, that the legal department was part of it and with knowledge of, of Synodon and said, therefore, they've fought upon the court and denied the right to a fair trial and granted judgment to Bernstein. Now, there's a ruling in law that exists that if you lose on one issue in a case, you lose that issue on every case. We don't want second trials of issues where you can get conflicting rulings. So it's called collateral estoppel. If you have a clear ruling that the person is guilty of this, then in every case that's ever filed, he's guilty of this. So I actually wrote a letter. And I didn't even realize that it was me until I happened to find it maybe a couple months ago. I wrote a letter to the Department of Justice that basically said, uh, you know, it was giving them advice, you know, and suggestions on the summary judgment motion, you know, draft of it. But I said, I said, because of the Bernstein ruling, couldn't we argue that it's against public policy merely for a charity to destroy evidence as to whether or not they're doing a charitable purposes or not? And that, and that you don't have to even reach the issue of whether or not Synanon committed the violence. The fact that they destroyed the evidence relating to the issue in and of itself would be a violation of public policy. And they filed a second summary judgment motion on that issue, and when signed to the same judge, we or not, had had Nixon tapes before him. <laughs> he must have thought it was a big deja vu. And uh, uh, he granted on that theory. He said that... Uh, I've been asked to 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 rule as a matter of law Sunon was a terrorist violent organization and he says and there is the evidence for me to do that, but it's not necessary because Sunon destroyed evidence intentionally relating to that issue and has lied to the court, you know, uh, about it uh, um, the IRS wins. Hi, this is William Ramsey. That was the second hour of a three-hour interview with attorney Paul Morantz, author of Escape, My Lifelong War Against Colts. His book can be found on Amazon and at his website, www.paulmorantz.com, P-A-U-L-M-O-R-A-N-T-Z.com. The entire three-hour interview can be heard at my YouTube channel, William Ramsey Investigates. Thanks.